Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman. Here is my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Kitubot, daf Kufa, page 106. Well, I'm going to start in the bottom of the previous daf, and we have a very interesting and rather famous story uh, involving a third century Amora named Rav Anan. And remember, we're in the middle of a series of stories about uh, Amurayim who basically recuse themselves of judgment or serving as a judge because there's even just a whiff of possibility of having bias because one of the litigants without is even without that rabbi even knowing is going to be a potential litigant may have done something good for that per, for that rabbi and then the rabbi says you know what I can't be your judge I can't be your dayan because I may now have a bias with you and so the Gemara reads as follows Ravanan Ate Lehaku Gavra so there was a certain man who once brought to Ravanan a basket of small fish. This is what the Gildane Dive Gile is, right? Amarle Ma Abditach. So he says to him, What are you doing here? You know, Ravanan asked him, Amarle Dina Isle. He says, I have a case that I want to put, you know, in front of you. Laki Belmine. So he didn't accept the basket of, of fish. Amarle Pislana Lad Ladine. And he also said to him, I'm disqualified now from even ruling on your case. So A, he didn't accept the gift. And B, he says, I also can't be your Dianan. Amarle, he said to him, Dina Damar La Baine. He said, I don't need the master's judgment, right? I don't need your judgment. Kabule Lakabel Mar Laman Laman Mar Bikurim. He said, but the but you, right, you the master should accept my gift anyways, so that you do not prevent me from presenting the Bikurim. Okay, now what did Bikurim have to do with this? So remember, Bikurim were the first fruits that somebody brought up to Yerushalayim, um, the the Mishnah in Zra'im, right? That's the the Seder of uh, Mishnah that we really only have no Babli on. We only have Brachot on, but describes a beautiful parade that would take place. The farmers would decorate their baskets beautifully and march up to Yerushalayim and bring the Bikurim on Shavuot. Um, and so they quote the following verse to Tanya. So this is a pasuk from Melachim Bet, chapter 4, verse 42, that says, there was a man came from Baal Shalisha, and he brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of corn in a sack. So this was something that he brought, the Yishalokim Zalisha. Now, the question is, did Elisha really eat these first fruits? No, because Elisha was not a Kohen, and the Bikurim is specifically a gift to the Kohanim. So what this Pasuk comes to tell us is, is that if you bring a gift to a Tamil Chacham, it's like you fulfilled the mitzvah of Bikurim. And so what this visitor is telling Ravanan is, is he's saying, look, I'm not here. I don't, I'm not worried about the judgment. I just want to fulfill the mitzvah of basically doing Bikurim. Because remember, the story takes place in Babel, right? And in Babel, uh, you know, there, there's no, this is well after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So in a way, what he's saying is he, this gives him an opportunity to do something Bikurim-like, even though he can't really do the mitzvah of uh, of Bikurim, right? It's Ki'ilu Makriv Bikurim. It's like he did the mitzvah of Bikurim. Amar Leis, Ravanan says to him, 
Kabule laba inan akabel. I don't want to take this from you. But now that you've explained it to me, I'll accept it. So what does he do? He sends the man to Rav Nachman. So he, and he sends this letter to Rav Nachman. The message says, because I, Anan, I cannot actually judge his case. So Rav Nachman says to himself, from the fact that he sends me this letter, I basically can conclude that he had to disqualify himself, Rav Anan, from judging this case because he must be a relative. Right? And at this time, there was a case involving orphans that Rav Nachman was also hearing. Amar, and he says, right? Hi, Asay, Asay. This is a positive mitzvah for judges to judge cases properly. Right. And it's also a positive mitzvah to honor a Torah scholar. In other words, Rav Nachman now is stuck in a bind. He needs to finish up this case with the Yatomim, with the orphans, and he needs to do it well. And also, he wants to respect Rav Anan, which is also a mitzvah to do. And he says in the end, he goes, you know what? The mitzvah of giving uh, kavod to a Talmud Chacham takes precedence, to, to Torah takes precedence. So he stopped judging on the case of the orphans and he settled down this case of the man, right? Because he assumed it was a relative of Ravanan and this was a way of giving him uh, respect. Right? But once the other litigants saw the, the honor that was given to this man by the judge, he got nervous. And he couldn't actually argue his claim, and it became closed. In other words, the litigate of this man against, you know, who this who gave the Bikurim, he saw that something funny was going on and that this person of the Bikurim was being treated special, and it made him unable to argue his case, and he basically lost. So basically, even though Ravanan tried to keep the integrity of justice, he didn't basically, because he still, by accepting this gift, even though this man gave him a good reason why he could accept it or what the motivation was, it still ended up perverting justice. And I think the story basically wants to illustrate to us how sensitive these cases are. And even if you think you're doing the right thing, any whiff, any any small chance that it could mess up the normal process of how judgment is given becomes a problem. Now, this is the interesting stuff that we get to about Ravanan. Ravanan habi regil eliyahu da'ategabe. So Eliyahu and Navi used to come to Ravanan, right? And he would teach him Seder de Eliyahu. Now, what is Seder de Eliyahu? So Seder de Eliyahu is a book called Tana de Be Eliyahu, um, which basically is, it, it's, a, it's a book of Midrash, and it's essentially comprised of two uh, sections, Seder Eliyahu Rabbah and Seder Eliyahu Zuta. So Seder Eliyahu Rabbah has 31 chapters, Seder Eliyahu Zuta has 15 chapters. Rashi will explain that this will become important is that one has the, the Rabbah part, which literally just means longer and Zuta means shorter, but the Rabbah part is written before this incident with Ravanan. The Zuta part is going to have been written um, afterwards. Okay, so what, what happens here? So Eliyahu used to come with him and they were basically writing this book together, right? Came into Abid Hacha, East LA. But once this happened with Ravanan, right, 
Eliyahu no longer comes to him. He leaves him. So Ravanan starts to fast. He prays for mercy. And he basically wants Eli to come back to him. But when Eliyahu came after that, he would scare him. In other words, he didn't come to him nicely anymore. It, was a, it, it wasn't a pleasant experience for Ravanan. So even though his prayers get answered, he doesn't have the same relationship with um, Eliyahu anymore. Right? So it, Ravanan made him a box, himself a box, where he would and he would sit in the box until Eliyahu taught everything that he needed to teach him of the Seder, right? Because in other words, he it was too scary for him to sort of interact with Eliyahu the way he did before. But Hanidamri Seder de Eliyahu Rabbah, Seder Eliyahu Zuta, right? And so this is where they say the Seder de Eliyahu Rabbah and the Seder de Eliyahu Zuta, right? That the first one was taught before this incident, and the second one was taught after this incident. So, uh, you know, two, so this is just a very important sort of who's who here, okay? So Ravanan, just to talk uh, a, a little bit more about him. So he's a third century um, uh, Babylonian um, Amora. He's a student of Shmuel in Nahardai. He's a contemporary of Rav Huna Amar Ukba. Um, and again, this whole visit, visitation with Eliyahu gets messed up because of this miscarriage of justice that he um, uh, that he committed. Um, what's interesting is, is that he, you know, this is sort of a very midrashic and agotic type of teaching, right? But we don't usually see him associated with midrash. He actually was a big teacher of civil law and ritual. So that's sort of very interesting as well. And just a little bit more about Tana Deve Eliyahu. So we talked about that there's sort of two books, one of 31 chapters, one of, uh, of uh, 51, uh, one of 51, 15. Chap 15 chapters, excuse me, right? And the Midrash sort of the, that goes through there is it sort of, um, it, it, it goes through like the history of the world and it mentions out periods of history. They're called Shitot. Um, so the first book deals with sort of the beginning of the wor world until um, man gets driven out of Gan Eden. And there's some subsections on Masa Merkava and Masa Bereshit. Um, and um, and uh, so this is sort of, it, it's a very type of like sort of uh, mystical book. And then the second book has to do, and then it, and it deals with sort of like different foundations, Torah, Gehenim, Gan Eden, Kisea Kabod, the Mashiach, the Beit HaMikdash in that first section, okay? Um, and then um, the second section goes to Gan Eden to the flood um, and the generations between Adam and Noah. Uh, there's also another section that deals with the flood to the King Menashe of Yehuda. So there, there's all, it goes through all different, uh, there's sort of like six sections that it deals with all different types of, of history. So just know about that. I, I You can... Google this, read this in Encyclopedia Judaica, um, but it's a very interesting sort of very uh, midrashic type of book, um, and uh, uh, you know, an important book for us to know about. And interesting to see how uh, you know it sort of talked about how it's actually uh, you know how it was actually written, and that the whole writing of it was basically disrupted because of this completely unintentional thing that Ravanan did.
So I think that anytime we see Eliel come in this kind of way, right, with uh, as a as a personality of Eliel Hanavi, right, Elijah the prophet, and he's coming and he's doing these mystical things or these supernatural things or teaching Torah to Rav Anan in this kind of way, right? It's so dramatic. It's so picturesque. And I feel like, because of course, right, if you read the stories in Tanakh about, about Eliyahu, he's also a very dramatic figure. And then, right, he doesn't die, right? He goes up to the heavens in this fiery chariot. So, of course, Chazal want to introduce him, you know, wherever they possibly can. And this seems to be a good place. I find this drama about Rav Anan recusing himself in the ethical kind of way that he's supposed to do, that he's suddenly now not eligible to meet with Eliyahu to be, you know, exactly that tone of Eliyahu taking such a hard line, you know, that even being in the position to recuse yourself was was too fine, right? The two, two you crossed the line, even though he didn't cross the line, right? He's keeping that lacha carefully. I, I find the whole thing to be captivating. Yeah, and, and the last piece I would say is please note how far this is past the destruction of the second temple. There is some element, I don't want to call it prophecy, but the fact that like he's interacting with Eliyahu, uh, this is not of the natural world, let's just say. Oh, for sure not. I mean, yeah. Eliyahu is so far in the past, in his in his lifetime, in you know, the stories in Sefer Malachim. Okay, I'm going to actually pick up where you've left off. Um, and carry on a bit. Um, because again, these Gemars are, they're very picturesque and very, I think, capture the imagination. So it says, in the years of Rav Yosef, there is a, this word Ritcha is like the same word as boiling, and it means an anger. In this case, it seems to be a divine anger. And the commentaries say that this is a matter of a famine, some kind of hunger. And and so people are angry or hangry, if you will. Amri la rabbanu of Yosef libai marachme. So the sages came and they say to Rav Yosef and they say, please, you know, pr- pray for rachamim about this decree, about this decree of this famine, about the hunger. Armalahu hashta umay lisha dechi havu rabbanan mifre mikame havu paisi tre alfin umatan matan. So what happens? He says to them now. If we were talking about the case of Alicia, the meaning not Eliyahu, but Alicia, which and this again, I feel like what what kind of answer is this? They've asked him to pray for Rachamim, and he starts giving them a shear, right, a, a a class on on how it could have been different if they were in the time of Alicia. So then he says, when the sages would leave Alicia, then two thousand your tre alpha nomatan, twenty two hundred sages would remain remain behind. And then, um, so it seems that Elisha would somehow pr- provide something, feed these sages, but he, he being Elisha, would not pray for mercy at that time of God's anger and famine. So says Rav Yosef, why should I? Why should I pray for mercy if Elisha didn't pray for mercy when Elisha had all of these Talmidim, all of these students who were flocking to him and staying by him and and so on, and the implication being that he does not have these kinds of numbers. And I'm puzzled by exactly what is going on here, because is Rav Yosef really playing a numbers game with the prophet Elisha, who lived, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before he did, and he's a prophet, and here we're talking about the sages, and 
Is it a rebuke to, to the people who are asking him to pray for mercy that, that really they should be, you know, they should be sticking by him more so that what? So that he can provide for them the way Alicia provides. There's a lot here that I would say it's a lot to unpack, but I, I don't even understand, at least not within the context here, and I don't have commentary beyond what I've said um, to explain exactly what's going on here. Perhaps one of you, our co-learners, will have um, suggestions for us. We always welcome those. The Gemara then goes on, though, to talk about First more about Alicia and then about these numbers. So the Gemara says, how did they get this number of 2,200 sages who would stay behind with Eliyahu? So there's a verse in the book of Kings, actually 2 Kings, right? Where the servant says, how should I set this before 100 men? And then the Gemara here says, what does it mean before 100 men? If you want to say that there were 100 men there, and then all of those gifts that he would receive, the bikurim and the barley and the corn, meaning all of these things are mentioned in the book of Kings in terms of what gifts were brought before Elisha. So then if all of those were supposed to be presented before these 100 men in the years of drought, right, then in a year of and famine, right, whatever, then that's a lot of food, and that should have been enough. So rather, the Gemara understands that it means that each one of every one of these loaves was placed before 100 men, meaning so he's got 20 loaves, according to the verse, and two meals of bikurim and corn and so on. So then if you're going to take your 100 and multiply it by those twos, and you end up getting, if you do the math, according to this, right, that it's each and every one of the loaves is before each of 100 men. So now we've got 2,200. Um, this is not simple math. This is not obvious math. This is a drusha. It's an interpretation because they're looking to understand why is it that they have this this tradition, right, of there being 2,200 uh, rabbis, sages, something, who would stick with Elisha. And then the Gemara goes on to talk about exactly this kind of numbers that when some rabbis would pick up and, and go, this many rabbis would stay and presumably continue learning. So when the sages would leave the Bey Rav, they would leave the house or the school of Rav, then 1,200 sages would stay behind to continue learning. And when they would leave Rav Huna or the school of Rav Huna, then 800 would stay behind. And then Rav Huna, Havadarish, would place our Amorai. Rav Huna himself would, exp- would explain whatever it was that he was teaching using 13 different speakers who would kind of repeat himself, repeat what Rav Huna said out to the crowd, right? They don't have a, a microphone system. They don't have a sound system. So they've got this broadcast opportunity where Rav Huna speaks and then 13, I don't know what, 13 people became human microphones, basically, to repeat uh, his teachings to the crowds. And then um, the Gemara goes on. Again, we've still got these numbers. No, it's still Rav Huna, I'm sorry. Um, um, so when the sages would get up from listening to these these classes in the yeshiva of Rav Huna, they would dust off their cloaks, meaning there's so many people now standing up that the dust would rise and it would block out the sun 
And you could see that same dust cloud from far. And they would say off in the West, the West means Israel, of course, and the land of Israel. They've gotten up the scholar. Look at in Israel, they would say, look at that dust. It means that the scholars in the land of, in in Bavel have stood up from Rav Huna's shiur, from his class. And of course, you know, you know the geography here. We're talking about Bavel to the land of Israel. So this is not an actual physical vision, but it is certainly presents us with this vision of, oh my goodness, look at all those people doing so much learning in Bavel, right? It's a very clear, um, you know, intensive Torah scholarship happening there to the extent that even in the land of Israel, they must have been jealous or or in awe of what was going on in Bavel. Um, okay, yeah, and then this lastly, is one of these, this is one of these pro Bavel Gemaras, <laughs> very pro Bavel. And then just, we have lastly here just another um, when they would when they would leave when the sages would leave the school of Rabba and Rav Yosef, four hundred sages would they remain behind. And they would call themselves orphans. And I wonder how much this last passage, meaning following on the section that we've just seen, connects back to the store, to the actual topics of Yavama, where we have, you know, heirs who are in fact now orphans. Why these people would call themselves orphans? Well, the point is that they were the only ones, <coughs> excuse me, they were the only ones left. Ki havu rabbanan mi <coughs> I guess it's that dust from Bavel. So some, they say either they were leaving up the school of Abaye or maybe from Rav Papa or maybe from Rav Ashi. Then they would say they would have 200 scholars who were in behind. And they would call themselves the orphans of orphans because, oh my goodness, they only have 200 people left compared to the 400 or the twelve, the 800, the 1200, and the 2200. So the idea that, um, I would say, if nothing else, I would say that there's an implication here that the learning never really ends. Like you think the class is over and, you know, the big important people, you know, scurry on to do their business somewhere else and you still have students left to keep on to keep the learning going, I would say that's a drush on my part. I Meaning, those are not the words you've all heard. Basically, the gist of the words is what's what's the, the grammar itself is much more descriptive without providing explanation or not right, much. But the but the description of them as yisomim, like yitomim, like that they're orphans, is very interesting. Like that when the session ends and they're sort of like learning there by themselves, that they're considered orphans somehow. I I don't know. I'm left with a lot of questions. With the description here, especially because two hundred, there are two hundred of them, right? Like in the the most meager classroom here or or lecture hall is still filled with two hundred people who are considering themselves to be, you know, the unfortunate ones, the leftovers, the orphans. Um, I want to just make one more comment, and I'm not going to read any more inside, but I will say that if you continue reading this stuff specifically on, you carry on to um the rest of Amun Aleph, where we have. Um, more discussion of what the public, what the public pays for, right? Which takes us a little bit back to the discussion of the judges, and you will remind yourself of Shkalim, Masachet Shkalim, where we saw 
um, specific things, you know, what what paid for what from within the coffers of the Beit HaMikdash and the special families that were had the traditions of, you know, the one hand weaving the court curtains or the other family that pre prepared the 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 Lech Lapanim, right? And both your Dan and I separately said, ah, this is like Shkalem. And lo and behold, then we got even more specifics um, of parallel passages to Masachat Shkalem. So that's all I have to say. Yeah, no, I just pay attention to that last uh, discussion there. It's definitely a little bit of a, a a tangent that they get on, and tomorrow we'll get back to the actual topic of this parak. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Tom at Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.